0: following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to take a detour. We are in Matthew 8, but um, today we're going to look at Psalm 90. I needed a little bit more time in Matthew chapter 8, and so I would ask you to excuse that. So if you have your Bible, I ask you to turn with me, invite you to turn with me to Psalm 90, Psalm 90. The title of this message is God, our dwelling place, God, our dwelling place. I want to just begin by reading the text before us, Psalm 90, beginning in verse one. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are two things that we see in this world, two things that are undeniable very obvious and clear. We see the need for mercy as we look out upon a broken, depraved, sinful, sin-loving, sin-destroyed world. We see the need for mercy. But we also see another thing. We see the quest for meaning. The quest for meaning. While not everyone recognizes their need for God's mercy, Everyone is on a quest for meaning. We want what we do to last. We want what we do to have eternal value. And so we see, as we look upon this world, we see the need for mercy and the quest for meaning. It's why we do what we do. It's why we choose the careers that we choose. It's why we make the decisions we make. We're searching, seeking for meaning, for purpose. And it isn't until we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, when we come to faith, that we realize, yes, we need the mercy of God. Not just mercy in saving us, but mercy in holding us fast until the very end. And it's only then that we realize that the only way the quest for meaning and purpose is going to be satisfied and ultimately fulfilled is if our quest for meaning lines up with God's definition of meaning of what it means to be meaningful, of what it means to be purposeful, of what he considers to be supremely valuable We know that the day of judgment is coming. We know that all of us one day are going to stand before God. We're going to stand and we're going to give an account to God. We're going to stand and be examined by God. Every one of us. And we are told in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that the quality of of our work is going to be tested. And so for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our work is going to be tested. What we did, what we labored, what we set our hands to is going to be tested. And if the quality of our work is something that he deems valuable and beautiful, those works will carry into eternity in the form of recognition and reward. On the opposite end, if those works, if our labors were labors that were meaningless and not meaningful in his eyes, those things will burn away right then and there. And so as Paul says, we'll be saved, but as through fire. We'll still enter the kingdom because we don't get into the kingdom by our works, we get into the kingdom by Christ's work and his works. And so when we look around, we see the need for mercy, and we see this quest for meaning. And what makes this all the more difficult is the condition of the world as we see it. We're not. Seek, we're not in need of mercy in a perfect world. We're not searching for meaning in a world that's easy and golden and beautiful. When we read the Bible, one of the things that is precious about the Bible is that its writers, its authors, were well aware of the condition of the world. They weren't writing in the clouds, so to speak. For example, we think of Solomon, we think of King Solomon and his work, Ecclesiastes. And if we're not careful, Ecclesiastes can be a rather depressing book. But what the book does capture is the quest for meaning in a broken world. And it's difficult, right? It's hard to find purpose and meaning When everything we could set our minds to and our hands to in this world is like chasing the wind, chasing the breath. Once we think we have it, we've attained it, we've arrived, we've done it, we open our hands and we realize there's nothing there. And so that's why the book of Ecclesiastes is not the only book in the Bible. The book of Ecclesiastes gives us a certain perspective on life as it is in this world, but thank God that we have other letters and other writings to tell us that while that's true and that perspective is accurate, that's not all there is. And so when we look at Romans chapter 5, we see that sin has entered the world and sin brought death with it. Sin brought death with it. Adam sinned and he plunged the entire human race and the entire cosmos into a state of decay, decay that comes from death, decay that comes from the absence of life as God designed it in the very beginning. We also see in a few chapters after Romans 5, we see in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation was subjected to futility. When Adam sinned. That is, he brought creation into a state of bondage. Bondage to what? Paul says bondage to decay, bondage to futility, bondage to be broken down and destroyed. Everything is in bondage right now. All of creation is waiting for deliverance, longing for deliverance, It's interesting how Paul kind of personifies the creation as if the creation is a conscious uh, entity longing for deliverance. And that deliverance will happen after the children of God are glorified in the presence of the Son of God. As I mentioned a few weeks back, the world will need to be renewed in order to be a suitable place for the glorified children of God. We will be made new. We will be shining like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. We will be bright. We will be glorious as Christ is glorious. And we will need a place to house us. And therefore, the creation will follow suit. And so we see all of creation yearning and groaning. And what we see in Psalm 90 here is really the thrust of this prayer is that God would grant mercy and also grant our lives to be meaningful. That's the connection here. When we turn to Psalm 90, it's a prayer for mercy and a plea for meaning in this world. I think it's encouraging and good to know that God hasn't just left us in a world and says, "and says, whatever you do, you're not gonna find any meaning here you're not going to find any purpose to the things that you do no there is in fact first corinthians chapter 15 that glorious chapter on the resurrection of christ and the future resurrection of the church believers ends with remaining steadfast and immovable always abounding in the work of the lord for what reason paul says because your labor in the lord is not in vain the things you do for christ and in christ are not in vain. They will carry on into eternity in the form of recognition by God and reward from God. And so Psalm 90 is this plea for mercy in a broken world. It's this plea for meaning in what otherwise would be a meaningless existence. It's written by Moses. Many believe that it was written towards the end of the wilderness wanderings. And so as God is... In essence, waiting for this generation to die off before Joshua brings in this other generation into the promised land across the Jordan. Can you imagine just the the, the the discouragement, perhaps even the depression of knowing that one generation is not going to be included in the promised land because of their unbelief, because of their sin? And so they're waiting, waiting for nothing, just to die off, to be Blown away like chaff in the wind, like dust in the wind. That's the context of Psalm 90. And so as we look at this this morning, I want to divide the chapter into four headings for you as we consider the text. Four headings. In verses 1 to 2, we see the reality of God's eternality. The reality of God's Eternality. And then in the larger chunk of the text, in verses 3 through 11, we see the realization of man's frailty. The realization of man's frailty. And then in verses 12 through 14, and really 12 through the end, we see a twofold request. In verses 12 through 16, we see the request for mercy. And in verse 17, the request for meaning. So the request for mercy in verses 12 through 16, and then the request for meaning in verse 17. And so let's begin by considering first the reality of God's eternality. Moses, the man of God, the main prophet of the Old Testament, the first of God's prophets, so to speak, Lord, he says, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You have been our dwelling place. Speaking of the collective people of God, the called out people of God. You see, even in the Old Testament, there were a people who were called out by God, singled out by God. We know them as the nation of Israel. It began with Abraham being called out of his idolatry and eventually it formed, they, 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 they constituted the nation. They, they became the nation of Israel. We read about that in the book of Exodus. You have been our dwelling place. In other words, we've been wandering in this wilderness. But even before we were wandering, when we were in Egypt, and even before Egypt, when we wandered throughout the earth, we were in you. You. You have been our refuge. You have been our home. You have been the one place of safety and security. And he acknowledges that. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. We have found refuge in you. Shelter. Hiding place in you. And he says in verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth. In other words, before the Lord raised the hills and elevated the mountains and created the earth is what he's saying or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you were god you see we can't speak of god in terms of a beginning the mountains they were brought forth the earth was formed these are these are words that signify a beginning and an end they were formed They were brought forth. God was never formed. God was never brought forth. He contrasts the created order with the creator himself. He contrasts creation with creation's creator. He says, you from everlasting to everlasting are God. Moses understands in this last generation dying off in the wilderness that even though they are coming to an end God has been from everlasting that's one of the things that is always a joy to teach children is the eternality of God because it raises so many questions how can God not have a beginning and how can God not have an end well that's something that should mesmerize even us as adults and so when you really think about it and try to wrap your mind around it all you can say regarding the eternality of God is that God is. scripture says that he is the one who was and is and is to come, signifying his eternality, his everlasting existence. You are everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting. And so as we look around and see the need for mercy, And as we pursue the quest and pursue this quest for meaning, the first thing we have to come to grips with is that we exist under the authority and sovereign rule and reign of a God who is everlasting. That even though we will come to an end, he will never come to an end. And that signifies the obvious is that if I am coming to an end and he never ends, it must mean that I will stand before him. I will stand before him and you will stand before him, the one who never ends. He will have the last word. His dealings will be the last dealings. Your works, your labors, even your sins will come to an end. His dealings with us will, have, will be the final, final word. As we move into chapter, verse 3 now, we see the realization of man's frailty. So again, as he contrasts the created order with the creator himself, he now contrasts man with God. He says, you return man to dust. This is probably a reflection of Genesis chapter 3 and how because of the fall into sin, as Adam and Eve were formed from dust, ultimately because of sin, they will return to the dust. And notice he says, you return man to the dust. God is the God of life and God is the God of death. He is the God who initiates life, creates life, sustains life, and he is the God. Let No, do not be mistaken. He is the God who ends life. He is the God who numbers our days, determines our days, determines our years, and that's every single one of us. Today we speak sometimes of accidental deaths, and they may look like accidents from our perspective, but there's no accidental deaths in the ultimate sense. He determines and decrees, as hard as that is for us to swallow sometimes because of people that we've lost, loved ones that we've seen go, he decrees the moments of our birth and our death. He says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, Return, O children of man. He says in verse four, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. He doesn't operate on the same timetable. He doesn't operate on the same calendars that we operate on. He doesn't use the same measures of time that we use. It's because he's eternal. He's everlasting. A thousand years are but the watch of a night, which was like four hours. He says again, verse 5, you sweep them away, speaking of all mankind, as with a flood. That's essentially what happens in death, is that the flood of our time comes to an end and that flood takes us away. We're like a dream. We're not just swept away like a dream, but then he goes on to say that you are like grass that's renewed, it has its peak, right? The grass that is renewed in the morning, it's fresh with the dew of heaven. It's at its prime, and that's how man is. Many of you are in your prime right now. Many of you are in your place where you just receive this dew from heaven, and you seem strong, and you seem able and capable and, 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 and adequate, if you will, to be fruitful in life. But notice the end of the Verse. Verse six, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. After the long heat of the day, the grass that was once fresh, vibrant, and green in the morning has been blasted by the wind. And all of that happens in the matter of just one day. He says, furthermore, in verse seven, for we are brought to an end by your anger. Now there's a sense in which Our wrath has already been poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. However, the decree that man should die is still the effect of God's wrath against sin, the sin of Adam. And so when we die, even though we may not be under the wrath of God as individuals, yet in a broad perspective, our death is the result of the wrath of God on sin. The, The reaction of a holy God To rebellion against him is to bring those subjects, those creatures to an end. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, verse 7, we are dismayed, done away with. And that's because of verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you. Which ones? Well, he says, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All sin takes place in the presence of God. Even though the phrase secret sin is used here, notice that there's no secret about it. He sets our secret sins in the light of His presence. What we think is happening in the dark is actually happening in the light of His presence. And even much more as believers. When we sin, we're not just sinning in the light of God's presence, but we are now sinning at the table with Christ. Ephesians 1 says that we are seated with him right now in the heavenly places. And so when we think of sinning, well, sin takes place, as it were, sitting with Christ, which makes the sin of believers all the more heinous and wicked, because we're sinning in the light of his presence, in the light of his table, Our secret sins, there's no secret sins. They're in the light of his presence. They're exposed. As Hebrews chapter four teaches us, all things are naked and exposed before the eyes of the one to whom we must give an account. All things are exposed. And it's a good thing to remember. As we live in this broken world, as we're in need of mercy, as we're on this quest for meaning, let's understand first the eternality of God, the frailty of man, But also the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of sin, the things that we commit in our hearts, the things that we think in our hearts, the things that hold us captive in our hearts are open before not only the God who will judge us, but the God who has saved us and the God who is for us as his children. He goes on and he says in verse nine, for all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80, even though Moses lived about 120. He looks at the rest of mankind and says, this is the average of what I'm seeing. 70, even if you have enough strength, maybe 80 But notice the description of those lives at the end of verse 10. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. The very thing Solomon teaches us in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's all futile in the end. It's all futile because it all comes to an end. It's all marked by toil and striving. Toil and trouble. Again, this is pointing us back again and again to the curses that came through adam's fall you're still going to eat adam but it's going to come through sweat like people say blood sweat and tears it's going to be hard to survive it's going to be hard to take care of your garden it's going to be hard to take care of your family our years are marked by toil and trouble ultimately because of the fall he says they are soon gone and we fly away do we really recognize this morning the brevity of our lives? They, they seem long, and yet every once in a while, God gives us those gracious moments where we realize that we haven't seen somebody in forever and we see them. And it's like, oh, man, I, I felt like I just saw you yesterday, and yet 10 years passed. Or I felt like I just talked to you yesterday, and, and it's been, you know, 15 years. That happens a lot. Or even when we see children, we see them one day, and the next day it seems like they've grown two feet. Those are those moments are gifts from God to remind us of the, the the brevity of life, of how fast life is actually moving. We think it's long at times in our times of toil and trouble and trial and tribulation. It seems like the night is it, it won't go away, I and mean, morning just won't come. But yet, when we look back years after, it's like, man, where did the time go? Where did the time go? We fly away. I'm not sure if that's where the song comes from, but. Maybe it is verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? As we're, as we look around and see the need for mercy. And as we're on this quest for meaning. The thing that needs to be asked and the thing that really needs to be considered is the wrath of God. You see, he's that the wrath of God in this context is the wrath that has moved him to bring humanity to an end by 70, 80, or 120 years like Moses. Who considers all of this as the effects of God's wrath? And the obvious question is no one. We just think we're existing. We just think that we're here. Obviously, Moses' generation, when he says we are us, he's referring to a generation of people who have been instructed in the ways of God. He's referring to a people who know God, his ways, his works, a people who have seen his hand of deliverance, mighty hand of deliverance and bringing them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into, uh, um, here, uh, into all, this, all these promises. And yet because of their unbelief, they're forbidden from going into the promised land. After all that, and he's still asking the question regarding his own generation, Who considers truly the power of your anger that brings us to an end? Who considers your wrath according to the fear of you? Who fears God truly? That's one of the indictments that Paul the Apostle brings in his summary of both Jew and Gentile. Not sure if we really realize the significance of that indictment in Romans chapter three, verse 18. After he has condemned the gentile world in chapter 1 for their idolatry and their open rebellion against God and after he addresses the hypocritical Jews in chapter 2 he then asks the question what then are we Jews any better off he says no not at all for we've already charged that all both Jews and Gentiles Greeks are under sin and he goes into this this list of sins where he says no one is good, not even one. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And then Paul caps it off, caps off all of that by saying, Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Why is the world in the situation that it's in? Is because there's we, we don't fear what we should fear. Instead, we fear things that are unworthy of our fear. The fear of man, the fear of failing man. When what should captivate us and capture us and keep us, holding us captive, so to speak, is truly the fear of God. The reverence that we should have of, his eternality and our frailty. The fact that he created all this with a word and we are but a a, a speck in this timeline of God's purposes. Who considers? I think the obvious answer is no one. We We move on to verses 12 through 16 where we have seen not only the reality of God's eternality, the realization of man's frailty, But we see now the request for mercy, the request for mercy. And notice how this plays out. The request for mercy first comes in the form of a request for wisdom. Look at verse 12. So in light of all of this, in light of your eternality, in light of our brevity and shortness of life, he says, so teach us to number our days. Moses is looking out on this generation, knowing that they're not entering the promised land. And even then, he pleads with God that God would teach that generation, including himself, to truly number their days, to count their days. The request is really to, is is saying to God, God, help me to realize how, how short my life is. And notice the next half of the verse. That, we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom, which means the application of knowledge, wisdom in this context is born out of the womb of the realization of how short our lives are. When we, when we have a man or a woman who truly understands what Moses is talking about here, the eternal existence of God, the brevity, the shortness of man's life, The the reality of sin taking place in the presence of God, in the light of his presence. And how we're all going to pass away. When you have a man or woman that truly ponders those things, that's going to be a man or a woman who, who, who possesses wisdom from God. Knows how to apply God's word in their everyday situations. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I mean, it's interesting how we number everything else in this world. The calendars that we look at on our walls and on our phones are all numbered. We know when the next birthday is coming. We know the next holiday. Everything's numbered. The very thing we should be numbering is not what we number. You might say, well, there's no way to know. Moses is not saying, Lord, give me insight into exactly how many days I have left here. Give me insight into exactly how many months and years and minutes and seconds I have left. It's interesting. I've just for amusement purposes, have looked at the, it's called the death clock, right? You can find it online and, and there's, there's a, you, but you can enter your, your age and, and, you know, it averages, you know, stuff and it, it, it's, it's a countdown of your life. I mean, you know, it's not real, but it still, it serves to get across the point that your days are numbered. Your very minutes and seconds are numbered, Realizing that should drive us to request mercy that would come to us in the form of wisdom. Wisdom. How to spend my time. How to make the most of my time. How to spend the most of my time with my family, my children, spouse, at work. In this world, the Great Commission... Teach us to number our days that we may get, gain, acquire a heart beating with wisdom that knows how to apply all the knowledge and truth that we've been given by God. Teach us to number our days. Verse 13, there's another plea. He says, return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. I think Moses is longing for those glory days again. I mean, here they are at the end of this generation about to die off. They all know that they're not going, there's a generation prepared to go in, Joshua and and such. And imagine how painful it was for Moses to recognize at the end of this era that the the glory days are over. There was a time when he stood before that burning bush. There was a time when God told him, before that bush, take the sandals off your feet the place in which you stand is holy ground the time of the miracles the works the wonders being displayed in egypt in moses' mind those days are gone there's a time in exodus 33 and 34 where the lord passed by moses and he allowed moses to see the back, his backside whatever that meant but even that was blinding and we ter- we learn from paul hundreds of years later Moses' face was, I mean, we learned there too, but his face was shining just by a, a, a catching a glimpse of God's glory from, 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 from the tail end, the backside of God. Those days are over, and he's saying, return, O Lord, return. By the way, that, that request was, that vision, I guess you could say, that, that that manifestation of God's glory came as a result of Moses saying, Lord, please show me your glory And then that was followed by what was perhaps even more glorious than the vision of God's glory. But it was the proclamation of God's name in Exodus 34, where the Lord passed in front of Moses, the cloud descends, and the Lord declares his own name, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but a God who will by no means clear the guilty, a God abundant and steadfast love and mercy. Moses is hit with the realization of who God is in his glory and his magnificent name. And by the end of the passage, we read that, that, that Moses bows his head, bows himself to the ground and worships God. He's longing for that again. He's longing for that vision of God again. That react that that that, that relationship that he once enjoyed with God. He's, pleading with God, return, O Lord. How long? Have pity or have mercy on your servants. The need for mercy. Verse 14, another request comes forth from Moses regarding himself and all that generation. He says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. We, we know that based on other writings that there are new mercies that come to us every morning from God. We read that in Lamentations, chapter three. Your mercies are new every morning. Weeping might endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning, why? Because mercies come in the morning. He is the God of second chances and third chances. He is the God of mercy, mercy today. Never promised, obviously, right? We can't be presumptuous and say that, well, God will show mercy tomorrow. We know that mercies are new every morning, right? But we're not to be presumptuous. When that morning comes, we're to thank God that his mercies are new that morning for you because of Christ. Satisfy us. Make us content. Fill us up, fill up our hearts. Make us full, is the word. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love your covenant-keeping love, your covenant love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Notice that all of these requests are flowing from mercy. Wisdom comes to us. Um, Satisfaction comes to us. Joy comes to us, he says, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. He says, verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. He's requesting this, acknowledging this, that all of this comes to us in the form of pity. He understands that it's not deserved. He understands that it's not earned. He understands that they don't deserve it. That's why he's asking. That's why he's appealing to God's pity and mercy. Satisfy us with your love that we might rejoice and make us glad for as many days as as you've afflicted us in this wilderness. We get that we deserve it. We get that we're getting what we deserved, but My final request is that you would bring us joy and gladness in your presence. Joy and gladness in your presence. And for as many days as we have seen evil. And he comes to the end of the section of this request for mercy in verse 16. And he says, let your work be shown to your servants. Again, he's looking back at those glory days. God's work in deliverance, God's work in freeing them, God's work in revealing himself to them, God's work in sustaining them and providing for them and just being their God. He's saying, let your work continue to be shown to your servants. And I love this next half of the verse because he's not just considering his own generation. He has his eye towards the coming generation. So often we pray with only us and our generation in mind. Moses here, in his plea for mercy, is also praying for this coming generation. Notice what he says. Let your glorious power be shown to their children. The children that are going to go into the promised land, Lord, show them your glorious work. Show them your glorious power. I think this is the heart of wisdom that is gained Um, by numbering our days is that we realize that we're coming to an end but there's a generation after us and this has huge implications for us as a people of God, the church is to think of not just us having a good church a healthy church or striving to be that at least but to think of man, I can kick over tomorrow Christian can kick over tomorrow Tony can kick over tomorrow any other brothers, sisters, can, we, we, can, we can all be gone today. How do we, as the people of God, ensure that there are, there's a place of truth for the coming generation? How do we, how do we ensure that there's a place for the, prop, the, the spreading of the gospel, even when we're gone? That's what Moses is concerned about is show us your work, but also let our children see your glorious power. We should be praying for the coming generation. We don't know when the Lord will return. We don't know when we will go. But we know that we ought to pray that God would show his glory to those who are coming after us. Those who are coming after us. Whatever decisions we make, let's keep the coming generation in mind. That's why it's a good thing. Even on a practical individual level, sometimes people talk about journaling or things like that. I took a, I, I took a, I took an old journal of mine out this week, and I, I was able to see where I was spiritually in like 2014. Some of it was very encouraging. Some of it was very discouraging. Remembering those those days, but it's interesting because if we, I'm not saying you know everyone's a journaler, but there's, there's, there's something to be said about the value of letting your children see later on, years down the road, the things you struggled with, the things you prayed about, the things you praised God for, the things that you were thanking God for in your life. Those are ways in which you can prepare the coming generation. I know, I know people who write letters right now in the form of a, a, a book journal to their children and have purpose to give that to them much later in, in their lives as a way of encouragement and stimulation in in, in the ways of God, stimulating their hearts, stirring up their hearts. These are all ways that we can encourage the coming generation. And so we see in this psalm the reality of God's eternality, the realization of man's frailty, the request for mercy. And as we come to the final verse here in verse 17, we see the request for meaning. The request for meaning. And this is fascinating that he ends on this note because even though they have been told that they're not going to enter the promised land, Moses is still concerned about fruitfulness. Moses is still concerned that his life be meaningful even to the very end. That the generation that, he's, that is about to die off, that even they, their lives would be meaningful. Look at verse 17. He says, let the favor. Another word for that. Is beauty. I think what he's praying for is that God's countenance would be lifted up upon his people. Let the favor beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And now notice the request. And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He says it twice. This is the quest for meaning. This is, this is Moses seeking that his life... Be meaningful in the end. That whatever he sets his hands to lasts, endures, is established. Established like a foundation would be established, like a structure would be established. Like a building would be established. Establish the work of our hands. He's acknowledging that by God's grace and mercy, one's life can have value and significance and meaning, works that can endure in this life, bless others in this life, bless the next generation, and also carry on into eternity in the form of recognition and reward. Moses, this is, this is amazing to me, because how would you feel if you were Moses or in that generation? Would you feel like there's anything worth living for at that moment or just going out and doing your your, your gathering of food. And I mean, he's still, quite, he's still searching for meaning. He still wants his hands to be fruitful, hardworking hands. We're living in days where we are not in the wilderness, so to speak, forbidden from the promised land. We're living on the other side of that and on the other side of Calvary and the other side of Pentecost, on the other side of all of this, before the return of Christ, how much more should we pray individually and corporately that God would establish the work of our hands? Our labor in the Lord. Labor that takes place first and foremost individually, on an individual level. Labor that then spreads out to your family. The people you know, interact with, people in the church, people in this world. This is a request for meaning. Paul the Apostle puts it this way, thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of the resurrection of Christ, in light of the coming resurrection of believers, when what is mortal puts on immortality, when what is perishable puts on the imperishable, when on that last day when Christ returns and that resurrection happens, when we see, I mean, I I don't even know what that's going to look like. I wish, you know, they have all these AI generators now that you can say, show me what it would look like if, right? We're left to our imagination, but can you imagine the Son of God descending from heaven with that cry of that archangel and that trumpet of God And returning with all of his holy ones and the entire world in terror, as Revelation 1 says, weeping and wailing on account of him. But his people finally relieved, finally, finally able to breathe and say the night is gone. The day is at hand. The eternal day is at hand. In light of all of that, can you imagine then when he not only catches up that generation of believers, but then speaks a word the same way he said, Lazarus, come forth. It's the same way he's going to resurrect all who have gone before us. All believers who have gone before us Spurgeon and Whitfield and Augustine and, 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 and Justin Martyr and, 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 and David and all these guys from the past. When, who's that? Sproul. R.C. Sproul, Sproul. There you go. You keep going, all right? Um, James Montgomery Boyce. All these guys that have gone before us in the past. The martyrs that died in those, those arenas in that day, being, de- de- being devoured by animals to provide entertainment for the Roman Empire, when all those believers are resurrected on that last day, and they're shining like the sun when they died in darkness, but they're raised in light. Paul says in light of all of that that he expounds and unpacks in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, therefore, therefore, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. He says, set your hand to the plow, put your hand in the bag of the gospel seed and go out and sow that seed, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain if it's done for Christ and in the power of Christ and for the glory of Christ, it's not in vain. And so I encourage each and every one of you this morning to pray the prayer of Moses in verse 12. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom that sets our hands to work. Wisdom that sets our... Hands to the plow, as it were. Wisdom that gets our feet taking the gospel to those around us. Give us wisdom, knowing how to apply your word and your truth for your glory, knowing that our labor in you is not in vain. That's the thrust of this psalm. But it's first, none of this is possible if we do not understand that God is our dwelling place. We live and move and have our being in him, and we can say that much more as believers. We live in him. He is in us. We are in him. He is our God. He is our fortress. He is our rock. He is our strong tower. And therefore, our lives can be overflowing with mercy, but also be fulfilled with meaning. Father, this morning we thank you for your word, which is able to sanctify us, which is able to purify, refine, purge us. We thank you this morning that we are in Christ, the vine, and that those that everyone who bears fruit is pruned even more so that we can bear more fruit. And so, Lord, as terrifying as it is to our comforts and to our flesh this morning, we do ask that in light of that that you would continue to prune us in ways that would ensure greater fruitfulness on our parts. Help us to remember this morning that you are our dwelling place and that before the mountains were brought forth or ever you would form the earth and the world that from everlasting to everlasting from eternity to eternity you are, have been will forever be God. We thank you that though we come to an end we can look forward to the time when we stand before you are accepted into the kingdom, inheriting the kingdom with one another and with Christ as our eternal shepherd. Father, teach us, we pray, to number our days that we might gain hearts of wisdom for Christ's sake.